Friends, before I call Lydia Bradford up, I have some really exciting news. Uh, could I have Matt Lemond come up? You don't know Matt, or some of you know Matt. Um, turn on the back of your bulletin to the contact info. If you look under staff, supports vision, you'll see lead pastor Blake Altman. Hey, Blake's not around. He's on sabbatical. Um, and right under that, you see operations director Matt Lemond. Matt Lemond is our first full-time non-pastoral staff hire. Matt's running the church, guys. So give Matt a hand. Why do we need Matt? In the New Testament, it calls its pastors and elders to the ministry of the word and prayer. It does not call us to setting up projectors, even though that's important. And so for five years, before I got here, Blake has been setting up the projectors and making the slideshows and printing bulletins and all this other stuff, right? And then I get here. So Blake is doing ministry of the word and prayer. And we're both messing with the projectors and, and trying to coordinate 10 different ministries. And we need help. And God's been gracious to us by bringing us Matt and his wife, Brittany. You can say hi over there. Matt has been on the job. He is now, I guess this is completing two weeks. And guys, it's awesome. I encourage you to get to know Matt. They're going to be moving to the Owasso area very soon. And so we're excited to have Matt on board. So Matt, Siri, and the other great thing about Matt, like he's taller than me. So he can change all the light bulbs at Trinity House, which is, yes, so excited. So Matt, we're glad to have you on board. Can I pray for you real quick? Father, we're thankful for Matt and for Brittany for giving them the call to, to minister to us by being our operations director. Bless that time. Help them to slide in smoothly to figure out what we need and to be able to execute. We're thankful that you, you have given us a qualified, um, industrious, and, and excited person to fill this role. And we're thankful for his wife, Brittany, as they look to move to Wausau very soon. Pray in your name. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Now, I'd like to call up Lydia Bradford. This is Lydia's last Sunday with us at Trinity. Hold on, I expect the boos to be louder. This is her last Sunday with us. Boo. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm excited that it's her last Sunday because Lydia's going on to do very interesting work to get her PhD in Michigan State, as you can see on her shirt there. And I wanted to give Lydia a moment to explain how she sees God using her PhD work that she's going to be doing for the sake of his kingdom. So if you could, step, step up to the mic. So um, about a month ago, Scott asked me to come talk about how God is going to use my work in the kingdom. And my first immediate thought was, Scott, 
have you never read Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller? Period. But no, seriously, um, it's been really interesting. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm really excited. I have wanted to go into academia and research since about my sophomore year of college. I was really interested in that ivory tower. I'm like, I'm going to climb up there, and I'm going to stay there. No, that's not me. If you know me, you know that's not me, but it's okay. So I started down this path of, okay, I want to go into research. Not exactly sure what I'm going to do, but let's do this. And I found myself sitting junior year, after my junior year, in a multivariable calculus class. And I hadn't taken math since senior year of high school. No, junior year of high school. That was more than four years since I had taken math. And I'm sitting in this class, working my butt off. And math people, you're going to get me immediately. Everybody else, you're going to think I'm crazy. But I'm sitting here, and I'm looking through this math, and I'm like, this is beautiful. The order in math is just screaming the glory of God. It's so beautiful. And I'm like, man, I'm in the wrong degree. And I continued on, and I took a class in health economics the next semester. And in this class, we delved a lot into the econometrics that the people, the researchers were using to do their research. And I was like, yes, this is also beautiful. The way that people are handling this research is like this order that makes so much sense that can only be because God created our world. And this is what I want to do. And I realized also that I cared more about the research the research methods than the actual research that came out of those methods. And so I kept thinking, kept thinking about what I'm going to do, and I came to Tulsa, as you guys can see, I'm here, and started teaching. And I taught at East Central High School and Tulsa Public Schools. And you guys, teaching is hard. It's really hard. And it's not hard because the students are disruptive. And it's not hard because my, because I don't get along with my principal. It's hard because the system sucks. And the system has failed my kids for like eight years or more. And so I'm getting ready and I'm like, I can't just stay in this classroom. I have to do something else. And so I start looking at programs and I'm remembering my time at university. And I find this program at Michigan State in measurement and quantitative methods. The goal, or this program specifically, just looks at how to do education research better. Um, to equip researchers to be able to do research better, to inform our policymakers better, to make our system better. And so, I applied and that's where I'm going, and that is my hope, that one day, I can use these beautiful research systems that God has created for us to help our education system. Thank you. Uh, so to be clear, Lydia is going to be doing research for how to do research better for education. I'm thankful for people like Lydia because to most of us that sounds like what? Um, isn't it cool how God uses like maybe an individual moment in a class in college to spark something like this? Friends, we need, we need Christians in every field doing their absolute best 
and in a field like this, it's just glorious. So Lydia, we're really excited to send you on your way. We're gonna pray for Lydia now. Father, we're thankful that to each of us, you've given a calling. And that's deeper than our occupation. And I ask that you would make Lydia's transition to Michigan State, to her research, just a wonderful one. Help her to find a church where the gospel is preached, where grace is extended. Help her to be involved there. Help her to enjoy the winters in Michigan. And we ask that through her PhD program, she would kill it. That she would excel and that you would use her research and her career to make better education research. We're so thankful for the time that you've given us with Lydia and we are delighted to send her out in her calling. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thanks. Y'all can clap again. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, turn to page nine, if you would, and we're going to confess our faith together um, by reading from the, the Westminster Larger, Larger Catechism. A couple questions here about adoption and sanctification, about what does it mean to be in the family of God? What does it mean to grow in the life of Christ, right? So Christians, how do you know that you are in the Lord's? Because we are adopted as an act of the free grace of God, in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his Son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And how can the Christian live out their life as true heir? Because sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts. And those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened, as that they more and more die unto sin, and rise unto newness of life. Having been justified by faith, that is, you have been justified by faith. Past tense. Therefore, friends, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of the Lord be with you always. And also with you. Take a moment to stand and to greet someone around you.
Hey guys, if you would, find a seat. Find a seat. It's now time. It's the time in the service when the children's are no longer on the back bleachers. I really like it that this process takes a while. Because what that means is like, y'all are actually talking and enjoying each other. And I, and I get to be the one to break it up, right? Y'all are having fun. It's like, ah, break it up, guys. All right. This morning, we're continuing in our study of the Psalms. Uh, in your bulletin on page 10, it's actually not Psalm 131. This is Psalm 30. Psalm 30. And if you're willing and able, would you please stand as I read God's word? Psalm 30, hear now the word of God. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my, Lord, o Lord, my God, I cry to you for help. And you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down into the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain strong, stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned from me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to look at this psalm in kind of three different sections. The first is in verses 1 through 5, where David talks about the rescue. Then we're going to look at verses 6 through 10, where David talks about the boast. And then we're going to look at verses 11 through 12, where David talks about the celebration. So the rescue, the boast, and the celebration. And it seems like the entirety, the entirety of the psalm comes about because David was very, very sick. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, Oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. You have healed me. He was very sick. And this is, this is actually very strange if you know all of the Davidic psalms, all the psalms written by David. 
very few talk about him getting sick. Most of them, when he's calling out, it's because his enemies are chasing after him. Oh, Lord, they're hunting me down. Oh, Lord, please keep my enemies from destroying me. And this one is just simply David being sick. And then he says something in verse 5 that I suspect that many of you, if you've been a Christian for a while, is familiar to you. Verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Well, let's talk about David's rescue. And let's talk about our rescues. And by that I mean, I don't mean salvation. Of course, we are rescued from ourselves when God saves us. But over the course of our lives, what we see is small to large rescues here and there, right? He rescued me from this illness or had this terrible accident and he rescued me and restored me. Or I was about to almost blow up my house and he rescued me. That was an actual story. Um, I thought it was a good idea when we lived in Pennsylvania to work on our gas furnace by myself. And um, I was trying to light it and I did something wrong and there's a big explosion in the basement. And Bonnie goes, Scott, Scott. I'm okay, I'm okay. Now all the hair was gone from my arms. I didn't have eyebrows. But God rescued me from being dumb, okay? When I say rescue, I don't want to thank just your salvation story. Because that's not what David is talking about here when he talks about his rescue. He's talking about a serious illness that God rescued him from, okay? So, as we look at verse 5, he says an interesting thing. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. In times of suffering or grieving or mourning, it actually feels like God is angry with us. That's what it feels like. The Psalms are not trying to instruct us all the time with like mental positive theology. They are expressions of the human heart kind of throughout, their the throughout our lives. When we're sick or grieving or suffering or mourning, quite frankly, it feels like God is angry with us. Doesn't it? Just kind of go down this road with me. Because if I say that, some of you are going, I don't want to say that. Because I've been raised not to say that. And some of us go through this mental exercise that is not allowed in some circles of Christianity, which is unfortunate. But some of us go through this mental exercise of, okay, let's, let's say, for the sake of argument, God is not angry with me. Uh, he still let me get cancer. Or he still let me lose however much money and stuff in a flood. Um, he still allowed. He still allowed this particular thing to happen to my child to cause my child to suffer greatly. I mean, he's God, right? 
If he wanted to stop your cancer, he could. If he wanted to have stopped your child from getting injured, he could have. If he wanted to stop your place from flooding, he could have. And I'm not trying to answer that question today. All I'm trying to do is walk down this road and say, he may not be angry with me, but it sure feels like it. Because it's not like, it's not like God's up in heaven saying, oh man, that one slipped by me. I tried to do something and it just didn't work. I don't want to worship a God like that who's not all powerful. And some of, some of our circumstances has been such of people in this room where you felt this way for a while. For some people, I mean, you see it on the news all the time. Like a woman lives to 105. What's your key to living long? Smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and drinking bourbon, right? Guy lives to 108. What's your key? I have bacon and eggs every morning. I mean, if I had bacon and eggs every morning and smoked cigarettes, <laughs> smoked a pack of cigarettes a day and drank bourbon all the time, I would be dead in two years. But apparently that guy can do it for 108 years, right? Our circumstances vary wildly in this congregation. And some of us feel like God's been angry for a while because our circumstances have stunk, quite frankly. Why doesn't he change the circumstances? And that's what the psalm is going for. It's not that he's actually angry, but in our suffering, it often feels that way. David's not trying to give God's perspective here. He's trying to give his. He said, his anger is but for a moment. Who knows how long David was sick? He could have had a man cold and been sick for a day. He could have had something serious and been sick for a week. He could have been sick for a year. I don't know. But whatever it was, it felt like God's anger. Right? Before I move on from that, I, before I move on from that, I think, it's very, I think it's very important to talk about what do we do with those people who feel this way? Who are suffering who are mourning, who are weeping, how do we help those people? Okay. Here's a list, here's a list of things not to say. Listen carefully. If your friend has got a cancer diagnosis, if your friend's land has been flooded, if something terrible has happened to your child. I mean, I could go on and on, right? Here's what you shouldn't say. Well, it could be worse. Well, it could be worse. Yes. I mean, you're, you're right. You're right, Sam. 
I'm not talking to anyone here, Sam. That's just the first thing that popped in my mind. You're right, Sam. My circumstances could be worse. I could be the completely sinless, innocent son of God put on a cross unjustly. Yeah, it could be worse. It could be worse in a million different ways, but that doesn't negate the fact that I'm suffering and what I'm suffering right now. Okay, that's one thing not to say. Another thing, well, you know, other people have it worse. That is very true. And it's not helpful. You get a diagnosis of stage 2 breast cancer, you don't come up to that person and say, well, Larry over here has got stage 4 pancreatic cancer. You should be thankful it's not on your pancreas. Things that I'm saying right now, things that I've heard the last couple of years. What do you not say? Well, it's really not so bad. Or you just need to praise the Lord. It is, it's endemic in the Bible Belt to try to take suffering and in a very Presbyterian way, like baptize it, like sprinkle. We love sprinkling in the Presbyterian church. Like, oh, here's your suffering. Let me just sprinkle some goodness on it. And we try to tamp it down so I don't have to deal with it because I don't know how to deal with it. You're grieving, you're mourning. I'm just going to say a few religious platitudes and hope to get out of it. Well, God has a plan for your life. that's great, but I didn't want cancer to be a part of it. That's great, but I didn't want whatever this is, whatever the suffering is, to be a part of it. Yes, God does have a plan, and sometimes, frankly, that plan stinks. So you all weep, grieve, and suffer. That's kind of where we're at. What do these responses do? I think at the heart of it, they, they dehumanize like we're created in the image of God, and we're in a broken, fallen world, and we ourselves are broken and fallen, and it kind of takes the person who is suffering and says, ah, yeah, but you're not actually suffering, or your suffering is just not, I mean, this person's suffering more, so your suffering is meh. Here's what you should say. I am so sorry. When a child breaks their arm and no complications, those parents still hurt. I'm so sorry. You lose a parent. I am so sorry. Because we can't really, really understand each other's suffering. I mean, there's no two circumstances that are exactly the same. What you got to do is just show up. Show up and be there and weep with them. You know, I want Trinity to be a place where people can suffer well. Without baptizing suffering in, in happy language, uh, without pretending that it doesn't exist, um, we're our brothers and sisters. We collectively weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. That's why, that's why our community groups are so important. Because if you're weeping in mourning, you need to be known. 
And it is really, really hard to be known if you're only coming here on a Sunday morning. And if you're in a community group, I guarantee they will weep with you and they will mourn with you because it's an opportunity for you to be known, right? Our suffering, to be sure, and hold on, our suffering is precious to our Father. I don't want to seem like I'm cavalier about him being angry or not. Friends, if you're in Jesus, you have been adopted into his family and he loves you as, as his child. Parents out there, do you relish the suffering of your children? Every parent at their heart would wish no suffering ever on their children. Your suffering is precious to him. It is. I want to look at the end of verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Joy doesn't just happen after sorrow passes. With this and other scriptures teaches us that sorrow actually produces joy. Sorrow actually produces joy. Uh, in Psalm 126, 5 and 6, it says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The picture that the Psalms paint is you're going through a field and you're dropping tears, and those tears are seeds. And by the time you get to the end of the field, you turn around and you come back with you, not with tears, but with these plants, this wheat that has sprouted up, and you're coming back with your arms full because your tears were the seeds for harvest. And the Old Testament and the New Testament both have this idea is not that sorrow exists just on its own or that somehow joy just happens to come after sorrow, but the godly sorrow actually produces joy. Why? Well, it does, okay, it does, but only for the Christian, okay? For the non-Christian, sorrow produces bitterness, Sorrow produces bitterness. But for the Christian, sorrow eventually, and I'm using the word eventually because I'm not talking about like a day, sometimes a week, a month, a year, whatever it may be, sorrow does produce joy. Why? Why for the Christian does sorrow eventually produce joy? Harlan read this verse earlier. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Why does sorrow produce joy? Our sorrow produces joy because we know our sorrow is ultimately temporary. We know our sorrow is ultimately temporary. Our sorrow and our grieving friends will not have the last say. It has an end date. Sometimes our sorrows are healed, like David's disease here. You get really sick, and sometimes you get well. Broken arms get healed. 
rocky marriages see redemption. There's all sorts of beautiful things that have happened in this church in the last year. But sometimes things don't go that way. And we just look to a future when God will make them right. You know, this is, friends, this is why it is so important to be in a church and to tell these stories of rescue so that we can point each other again and again to God's work in our life, look at the rescue that God has done, or to God's ultimate making everything right. Either what he's done or what he's going to do in the future. We need to be reminded. Look, because life is short, it's brief, and it's very frail. It's very frail. And so it's very interesting then that David takes a turn in verse 6. He goes from talking about the rescue that God has given him then to this boast in verse 6. Um, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't think that's going to last. Um, yeah, look, it lasts a verse. Look at verse 7. By your favor, Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Oh, um, then you hit my face and I was dismayed. Um, friends, if God gives us favorable circumstances, we better attribute them to him. I mean, oh, can I put, maybe I can push a button here a little bit. We live in the United States, which is largely capitalist, Right? where I'm not trying to be controversial, but in my head I am. Where if you work hard, you can make something out of your life, right? This is the American dream, where you can do that. It helps if you're born in America to a family that doesn't, that doesn't abuse you, Right? I mean, not exactly the same life if you're born to an alcoholic, prostitute mother in Bangkok. A lot of us got to where we are, whatever that is, actually through hard work. But God is the one guiding our circumstances, right? And I think David knew that. He got a little cocky here, though. Said, I'm the king. I've been doing a good job. I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And God says, I will move you. And he did it with his health. Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, yeah. So it's like, the, it's like that saying, and I don't know if some of you guys especially had the saying with your dad where your dad would get upset at you and, go, and he goes, boy, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. God has that moment with David here. And then David moves down in verse 9 to kind of this, this bargaining with God. 
It's like, oh, Lord, you really need to restore me. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? God, you need me. You need me to praise your name. Will the dust praise you? Yes. Will it tell of your faithfulness? Um, Jesus said the rocks would cry out. You're not so important, David. So life is brief and frail, and our boasting is useless. God doesn't keep us around for us just to praise him and tell his faithfulness. Man, he keeps us around just for his own good pleasure. For his own good pleasure. He is, he is pleased to have you here in worship this morning, breathing, sitting in black chairs. He is pleased to have me bringing you God's word, but he doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't. You know, boasting about all of these, these circumstances, they ultimately remind us of life's brevity and frailty. Because ultimately, we all suffer and die. That sounds terrible, right? Um, this is not a pep talk um, sermon. This is not. But sometimes the Bible's not a pep talk Bible. So... Welcome to Trinity, people. No, <laughs> but look, our, our temporary frailty and stuff, look where the psalm moves to. Look where it moves to, verses 11 and 12. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The Lord's rescue produces celebration. We see in all of our lives, little rescues and big rescues all over the place. We absolutely do. And they're designed by God to show us that we are frail, that life is brief, but he's at work. And he wants to turn our mourning into dancing. This Hebrew word turned here, in verse 11, you have turned my morning into dancing, ekva. It's to turn over to the other side, like flipping a coin, or to overturn or overthrow or destroy. It's not a, hey, here's what God wants to do. He wants to take your morning and kind of mush it over into dancing. No, he wants to come at it like a freight train and absolutely destroy it. And now you're dancing. That's his heart toward you. To have your mourning, your grieving, turn into gladness. From, from grieving to gladness. Friends, how can we have this hope? Right now, some of you don't see rescue and you desperately want it. Some of you have seen rescue and you're in the process of celebration. What's our hope in this, friends? Our God has the last word. There will be a day when our suffering and our grieving will end. And Jesus will stomp on death and suffering and despair for the last time. And you and I will never again cry. We will not weep. 
because Jesus will end it. Without that, you and I go around like the world and we grieve and we mourn without hope. We know what the final part of the story is. And because of that, our mourning, even in it, can be turned into dancing. Let's pray. We thank you that you are a God who fulfills promises, who turns mourning into dancing. Father, make us a church. Make us a church who has and gives these stories of rescue, little rescue, from like little broken arms that are healed correctly to big rescue. And help us to be good, good brothers and sisters who mourn and weep with those who are mourning and weeping. Father, it's in your hands in all of this, whether we're in the part of celebrating or in the part of mourning, set us firmly in the hope of our Savior's second coming and making all things new. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now um, to help us, help us to give cheerfully, um, to give despite our circumstances. We pray, Lord, that you would inspire us uh, to give with ambition for your church. Um, and we pray now, Lord, just that uh, we might praise you through our giving. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There are many reasons 
There are many reasons I love the supper. Sorry, I was distracted by the kids coming in, and I love it that our kiddos are in here when we take the Lord's Supper. One of my favorite things about Trinity. Um, there are many reasons I love the Lord's Supper. I'll give you one that's related to what the sermon was about. The Lord's Supper is for you if you have been experiencing rejoicing and seeing stories of rescue. If you've been in a, where you've been praying and the Lord did a rescue moment on you, you come to this with such gladness and thanksgiving. And it's also for you if you're mourning and grieving. As you come to the table and you get hope. Hope that things will change. Hope for a future. And maybe even just hope that one day Jesus will return. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the body, or the, mm, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In, in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for remission of sins. All of you drink it. And the Apostle Paul says, for the church, for as often as we eat this bread and as often as we drink this club, cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, until he makes all suffering and mourning and grieving right. This table represents an end to it. Join me. Join me in our liturgy as we speak of the glories of taking this, Jesus' body and blood together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. Right. It is right and good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks unto you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, and therefore with angels and archangels in all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. This is the Lord's table, not just the table of Trinity Presbyterian. And so if you are a Christian, baptized in the, into the triune name, if you're a member of a church or you're a part of a church where the gospel is preached, friend, this is for you. This is not for people who think, I'm a pretty good person, I can do it on my own. This is for sinners, people who know that they're sinners. In a moment, 
the elders uh, are going to come forward, and I'll pray, and we'll take ours here, and then we'll go to four different stations. There's two in the front and two in the back. You're welcome to come at your own leisure. If you need a time to rest, do that first. If you want to come, immediately come. And we'll make semicircles around the servers who will then give you the bread and the wine. There's a gluten-free option, and grape juice is the light color. Red is actual wine. And then you'll partake of the elements together. When you're done, put your glass on the black tables and then find a seat. If the elders could come forward as I pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that his death and his resurrection are the first fruits. Lord Jesus, we celebrate this now, but we long to celebrate it with you at the final marriage supper. We pray this in your name. Amen.
For those of you who are mourning, who are discouraged, who feel like God is frowning on you, I want you to hear this benediction. Friends, raise up your hands. He is not frowning on you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes His face to shine upon you and is gracious to you. He lifts up His countenance upon you and gives you peace. Let us go forth into Owasso and Tulsa and the world to serve our neighbors as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace.